Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this evening, for our parish community, for all that's happening here tonight. And we thank you especially for this time to dive into your word. We ask that you anoint this time, that you consecrate it, and that you bless each one of us in the ways that we most need it. And bless us especially in our hearing of the word tonight. We pray, Lord, in this final week as we lead up to the great season of Christmas and remembering your incarnation, that we would be open, present, quieted to the opportunity to welcome you into our lives, to be born into our lives anew each day. And tonight, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us each in the way that you have prepared. You knew each one of us would be here tonight. And so we ask, Lord, that you help us to be attentive and open to receive whatever you have in store. Help us to, uh, and bless us to remove any anxieties, anything taking our focus away, anything distracting us, and allow us to fully enter in to this time in your word. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're going to be in John chapter 1, the prologue of the Gospel of John. We're going to read the first 18 verses. So this Sunday, obviously, is Christmas, uh, Merry Early Christmas. And when you go to Mass, if you go to the vigil on the night before, uh, you're going to hear a different gospel. You're going to hear Matthew 1 to 25. Now, part of that is the gospel we studied last week. Okay, so part of that is the little birth narrative where the angel appears to Joseph in a dream. But what you're mainly going to hear before that is the whole genealogy of Jesus. Uh, and that is particularly why I chose this other reading, which is the reading for Christmas Day. So there are some really cool things about the genealogy some cool figures we could focus on, but for Lexio Divina, a genealogy is a little bit hard to kind of really pray through. So if you go to Mass on Christmas Day, you're going to hear this gospel. Okay, so this is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. First time through, we're just going to get a picture for what is being said. So um, this is a very uh, heavy kind of theological and poetic discourse at the beginning of this, uh, the gospel of John. And so just try and kind of focus on what's being said here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through Him, and without Him, nothing came to be. What came to be through Him was life, and this life was the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A man named John was sent from God. He came for testimony, to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify to the light, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came to be through him, but the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not accept him. But to those who did accept him, he gave power to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not by natural generation, nor by human choice, nor by a man's decision, but of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we saw his glory, the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, The one who is coming after me ranks ahead of me, because he existed before me. From his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace, because while the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. 
The only Son, God, who is at the Father's side, has revealed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So, now we're going to read this one more time. Now that you get a sense for what is being said, this time I invite you to listen very intently to the words as we read them. Pay attention to see if there's any particular word or phrase that strikes you personally for any reason. It's not to interpret the passage theologically. We're listening to what speaks to us individually. So maybe a word sparks a memory. It relates to something you've been praying about, something going on in your own life. Hold on to that. Begin to reflect on it and ask, God, why are you speaking to me through this? What are you trying to say to me? What are you compelling me to do? So the second time through, listen for whatever that may be. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through him. And without him, nothing came to be. What came to be through him was life, and this life was the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A man named John was sent from God. He came for testimony, to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came to be through him, but the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not accept him. But to those who did accept him, he gave power to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not by natural generation, nor by human choice, nor by a man's decision, but of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we saw his glory, the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, the one who is coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. From his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace. Because while the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only Son, God, who is at the Father's side, has revealed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments, look back over the passage and the things that stood out to you, reflect on them, and then share at your tables those things that stood out, as well as any questions uh, that were inspired in reading this. If you're watching or listening to this later, share those thoughts with us. But for those of us here, we'll take about the next 10 minutes to share with those you're seated with. Feel free to uh, group up and make bigger, larger tables if you'd like, or stay where you are. All right, so what are some of the things that are standing out, questions that you have? It's like a dense uh, passage, yes. Will you explain the word, the word, and the word? The first In the first three lines, Yes. word, word, and word. Yes, okay, so they all, have, they all mean the same thing. They all, um, the, the word for the word <laughs> in, uh, in Greek is logos. Um, and, and this was a, um, so the interesting thing about this passage as a whole is John is writing this gospel last. Okay. So the other three gospels, they're called the synoptic gospels, which means same or similar. They talk about Jesus from different perspectives to different audiences, but they have similar content and they all write, uh, pretty, um, definitively before the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70. John is writing after all of that. He's writing a gospel from a perspective that is now more theologically developed, and he's writing to a community that is now integrated of Jews and Gentiles. Okay, now I say all that because the, the Gentiles were mainly Greek-speaking and part of like the Greek and Roman world, and you know, they were used to um, you know, polytheistic things, but they had this, all of this Greek philosophy from um, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, um, all of these great thinkers. And in that tradition already was this idea of the word, the logos, which they saw as kind of the animating source um, and, and kind of, I guess the, the best equivalent of it 
in Hebrew would be wisdom. Like if you, if you read about wisdom in the Old Testament, wisdom is personified as a woman, Sophia. That's the, the Greek word for wisdom in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Personified as this person who comes to animate and sustain us and keep us going and give us the virtues that we need. The, the kind of uh, equivalent of that in the Greek philosophical world, it was logos. And so logos was this, it was like the basis of knowledge and it was kind of the fundamental source of all things, the, the uh, cause of existence. That was kind of what this was in, how it was talked about in Greek philosophy. Uh, and, and in the same sense, if you go to school today, like my wife is an English teacher, she teaches about pathos, ethos, and logos uh, when you're writing a paper, when you're making an argument. And logos is like the, the truth, the fundamental truth or knowledge that you're trying to convey. It's the argument you're trying to make. And so the source of all of that uh, in, in the Greek world was like, what is that fundamental basis of truth that animates all that we do and from which everything came? Okay, so that's where what word means in all three of those senses. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yes. You said wisdom is personified as a woman in the Old Testament? Yes, okay. yeah. Yeah, all throughout Proverbs um, and some of the other wisdom books, um, like Sirach, Ecclesiastes, Wisdom, you know, places like that. Yeah. What's the, why, what is the reason why wisdom is personified as a woman? Uh, probably because of the in the gendered language, um, it is a is a feminine word. Yeah, Sophia, in in Greek. I don't know if in Hebrew chokma is the word for wisdom in Hebrew. I don't know if Hebrew is gendered in the same way. It, it is. It is. And, so I would imagine chokma is a female, uh, yeah, female word, female noun. Yeah. I'm always curious why Jesus is called the Son of God, even before Mary. Mm -hmm. Why did they say Son? Because we, our, our whole concept of Son he comes from a birth, comes from a mother. Mm -hmm. He's called Son. Yeah, that is interesting. It could, you know, the way that God chose to reveal himself as Trinity could have been brother, you know, could have been some other, you know, could have been three three brothers, you know. Um, I think the the... Okay, there's a lot of things that my brain wants to say right now. But I think the thing that I think is most important to say is that there's something about the generative or the creative act of there being like a father and a son, a lover and a beloved, like this kind of bringing forth life that I think was something we were meant to understand, like a lens through which we were meant to understand God, like meant to see God as both a, a creator and a created, like a father, so that we can see him from the perspective of being children but also then see him as one of us, you know, one who was created, who can relate to us. I think there's like a genius to that. Um, did it have to be that way? No, but that's how God chose to reveal himself. Um, and maybe that's, you know, in terms of our theology, that's the best description we have of God, is him as a trinity. When we get to heaven, we may realize like, oh, that's what he was trying to convey. But the way in which he is, is actually beyond our understanding. That's just the best way we can understand who God is, you know. Um, so an analogy for that is like in first John chapter four, it says, if someone is without love, they do not know God for God is love. And so the idea of a father, son, and a spirit is one way to communicate God is love because in that relationship, there is the father who is the lover, the son who is the beloved and the Holy spirit, which is the love in between them. So God chooses to reveal himself in the context of a three-way relationship. That is one example of how God can be love. Just like another example is, I am the lover to my wife, the beloved, and the love in between us is our children. That's another familial example for God uh, that we could use, but he chose to reveal himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah? I think it's because we identify with our kids. You know, like we'll give anything for our kids. You know, in the normal world, we would never hurt our kids. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's why he chose that because he knows that the bond between parent and child is very strong, and he knew whether we could identify with that. Yeah, and there's there's intimacy there, right? So, going back to what I was saying in, in answering Faye's question about the word, like the Greek community that's hearing this, they're used to polytheism. So this idea that God was different things would not have been confusing to them. The idea of logos would not have been confusing to them. Okay, this would have been like, sure, yeah, we get that. We see that everywhere. 
no problem. Um, but the idea that God was intimately involved in our lives, that we were meant to experience him as a father and like this kind of father-son relationship, that would have been very unfamiliar. Because in their understanding, in all the pagan mythologies, the pantheons of gods, like there were numerous ones, and none of them cared about humanity. None of them cared about humanity's existence, their benefit. All they wanted was humanity's worship. And ultimately, humanity was just like the gods' playthings. You know, and you didn't really appeal to gods in the Greek and Roman context unless you were afraid that something bad was going to happen. You would appeal to them to prevent something bad from happening. If you thought you were going to be defeated in a battle or if you thought something horrific was going to happen or you wanted to try and like, you know, negotiate with a god so that some better alternative would happen. So imagine that kind of idea they had of the god or gods and how kind of vindictive, manipulative, like untrustworthy that was, and then compare it to this and the God that's revealed in the, in the rest of the New Testament. That would have been very different, okay? Uh, another thing that would have been very difficult for the Greek-speaking people is the phrase in verse 14, and the word became flesh. The word became flesh. To the Greek people, in Greek philosophy, there was a difference, a separation between the body and the spirit, you know, the flesh and the spiritual, and the flesh was everything that was bad. Everything that was earthly. And this creeps its way into the New Testament. We have passages that are like, you know, um, uh, seek what is above, not what is, you know, not what is of below, the things of the earth. Uh, put away all of the earthly desires, licentiousness, you know, all of those things. And seek, you know, the, that which is the spiritual, you know, or the things of the spirit. There are whole passages, whole, whole letters about that. And so um, to them, that would have been very hard to, to understand. There was a phrase at the time uh, called somosema, which means the body's a tomb. And their idea was that your body is trapping your spirit. Okay, this is kind of like Scientology, actually, except your spirit is an inner alien that's ancient. Um, so not that similar. But anyway, but th this idea that your body is this tomb that's holding you back from the person you were created to be. Okay, in the Hebrew world, you were an integrated person, body, and soul. There was no separation. Anything that you did to your body affected your soul. Anything you did to your soul affected your body, okay? And so that would have been easy for them to understand. They would have had a difficult part, time with the beginning of this, you know, this whole idea of logos and their monotheistic religion, which was very unusual, especially for the generations before when no one else was monotheistic and they were completely set apart from the people around them. And now they're hearing about there was God, but now there was someone with God. And so you can see kind of how John has to craft a very clear but very highly theological explanation for these two different, vastly different groups of cultures to try and help them both understand who God really is, okay? And this has to do with the nature of Jesus, that he is both fully human and fully divine. That's what we call the hypostatic union, that he has two, um, two natures, two wills. He's a human will, a divine will. He's a human nature, a divine nature. That didn't get fully defined for another 200, 250 years after this was written. So the theological complexity of this in John is just incredible. In fact, C.S. Lewis, he wrote that nothing like compares to this in terms of like, like this is, has the equivalent of the prose in it is very like beautiful. It's, it's unparalleled until basically the development of the modern novel the first of which is Don Quixote by Miguel Cervantes, which is like in the 1500s or something like that. So like for 1500 years, this was the, this stood alone as like the most, one of the most complex literary pieces of prose because it had to describe something that is the most complex and mysterious in all of, you know, human understanding. And that's how we see God. You can even see it in the way this is written. You'll notice like in the lines, you see this more in the original Greek, but um, kind of the end of one line is the beginning of another. So the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through him, and without him, nothing came to be. What came to be through him was life, and this life, you see how these words at the end of one phrase start to repeat. So it's very beautifully crafted, like so much more complex. So you have this, and then you put that against Mark, the Gospel of Mark, the first uh, gospel written, to which Augustine once laughed because the Greek was so crude and simple, both of which end up in the New Testament, which is just shows you, you know, the beauty of all the different lenses through which you can see God. But that, a little background about why this prologue, I mean, whole books 
have been written about this passage. In fact, whole books have been written about that word, the word, logos, and what it means and how we can interpret it in terms of what it tells us about God and the nature of the Trinity, the nature of Jesus. So this is a huge, hugely complex um, piece of scripture. And it, many believe it was taken from early Christian hymns, that it takes parts from Philippians 2, uh, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. There's different hymns in those areas of the New Testament. And was maybe an early kind of creedal statement before we have the creed that we have. You know, I believe in God the Father Almighty. This is something that Christians may have memorized and they would have said, you know, as creed statements, along with those other passages I mentioned. So um, it's a very significant and hugely important passage. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I read, uh, I'm not old enough to remember this, but in the older Latin rite of the Mass, pre-Vatican II, um, it was part of the normative part of the liturgy that this passage would be read at the end of every single Mass. So that people would remember, like, this is why we're here, this is who we're worshiping. It was considered that important. Of all the other passages in Scripture, this was the one that was read. Yeah. In one sense, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's how Jesus, one way to see our relationship with Jesus. He is like our human brother, but he is also our savior and is God, you know, far and above us at the same sense. But yeah, um, there is a distinction here where it says, um, give power to become children of God. That word in Greek is tekna for children. That's never the word used to describe Jesus. Jesus is also always described as huios, son of God. He's the only one who's called the son. And so even though we are children of God, there's a distinction made in the original language that it is similar relationship in terms of familiarity. God is the father of all of us. But how that relationship looks between father and son versus father and the rest of his children is different. And that's just clear in the language. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is proof that Jesus is not created. Yes. Because there are other religions that believe that Jesus was a created spirit. Mm -hmm. Or that he was a man who was given divine ability. Yeah, that's the heresy of adoptionism. At this particular point in time, did John feel there was a need to do this? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, because this, be, this was one of the first major heresies of Arianism, that God, that Jesus was not really divine, that he was just human. Uh, and so, and this persisted until it was finally resolved in 325 at the Council of Nicaea, out of which came the creed, the Nicene Creed that we pray at Mass. Uh, so this was an early iteration of an ex, uh, attempt to explain who Jesus is, because so many people were confused. Is he a man? Is he God? Like, the Jews are coming from a monotheistic background. The Greeks are coming from a polytheistic background. They're suddenly this integrated, multi-ethnic church community, all coming with different cultures, backgrounds, and experiences, trying to figure out who is this Jesus person. You know, he rose from the dead, so he can't just be human, but he also died. So can he be God? Can God die? You know, it's very confusing, you know? And as far as I know, no one's ever done this before, uh, and no one's done it since. So, you know, we don't have, we, no one had the language or the understanding to be able to articulate this. It took hundreds of years to develop and to be formally defined in a way that was like, all right, now we can defend this against all these different heresies or misunderstandings that are cropping up. I wonder how the Greeks reacted to God became man. Hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know anything historically specifically if it would have been that shocking to them. I do think the idea that God became flesh again, that God would become a body, would have been very kind of odd. But then at the same time, you have like uh, demigods or like Zeus taking human form so that he can come and like interact with humanity, have relationships with humans, and all the different myths and stories about those things happening. So I think it wouldn't have been unfamiliar in terms of the legends they had about their gods and goddesses. But they still would have been like, well, why would someone come and like want to be like live a whole human life? Whereas those gods and goddesses just came to kind of like have their fun and leave. Jesus came to live a full human life. And they would have seen that, I think, as kind of ridiculous or unnecessary because, again, they saw the body as bad. The flesh is bad. We were meant to ascend to the spiritual that was far greater and above our normal earthly existence. Yeah. Where in scripture I know it says something about um it being like a stumbling I know what you're talking about. For some reason, I thought it was not related to this. I thought it was about the Eucharist, but maybe that language isn't used in John 6. 
Um, I don't know where that is. If anyone has a, a pro Googler, what verse has a, the phrase stumbling block in it? There's only one or two that I'm aware of. Other uh, questions, thoughts? Things that stood out to you? Yeah. So I was looking through Genesis because I had recalled that it's in Genesis that God kind of talks about it himself in a multi-person. Yes. And I found um, in verse 22, it's uh, then the Lord said, knowing good and evil now, or sorry, the Lord said, see, the man has become like one of us. Knowing good and evil now. Mm -hmm. So talking about us as a more than a singular. Before that, everything is the Lord, God is all singular. Yeah. So I was wondering where else in the Bible um, does it point to this multi person? We see that Jesus, the Holy Spirit. I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit is pointed out several times, but yeah. Where else does God speak to Himself as a us or? So the only other place I can think of off the top of my head is right before that in Genesis 1, where he says, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Um, some of the problems that scholars have brought up with that is that it was common to write about God or the gods as if they had a heavenly court. Like the visions of heaven were seen as kind of this heavenly throne room. It was very, very much modeled after an earthly style of a kingdom, a king and his palace. And so some uh, biblical scholars or critics have said that, you know, that language was used because they had an image of God, even though it was monotheistic, potentially, at this point, even uh, this early, which would be very unusual, uh, still to see uh, God in the presence of a heavenly court. So when you say something like we or our, we cannot necessarily be assured that the biblical writers at that time knew that they were conveying a trinity. And yet at the same time, Scripture is inerrant, and even if they didn't know, the Holy, Holy Spirit was guiding Scripture in its writing. And so even though the person who wrote down Genesis may have been thinking of a heavenly court, the Holy Spirit was guiding him to write it in such a way that we can also interpret it as there was a trinity. You know, so it was hard to know. Yeah. Yes, yeah, the three strangers. Um, you know, you could interpret those as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are some uh, translations that would render them as three angels. Um, so it's difficult to know there as well. Um, you know, you have um, the, the, the three strangers who come and appear to Abraham, who he greets, who tell him that he's going to have a child. Um, yes, yeah, in Genesis 12, 15, Genesis 12 or Genesis 15, uh, one of the times where Abraham is told about the covenant or right around there. Um, I'm also thinking of like, you know, um, the, the fourth person in the furnace, you know, in the book of Daniel. You know, sometimes people say that's Jesus. Sometimes people say it's St. Michael the Archangel. Others just say it's an angel. It depends on how you interpret it, what, you know, language you're looking at. You know, there's been a lot of different traditions about um, what that could mean. So there's a lot of places in the Old Testament where you can interpret multi-person or multi-being um, experiences of God or the heavenly, but it's difficult to know definitively what was, in, uh, what was meant. But we can interpret scripture in many layers. We can interpret it in a Trinitarian way. We can interpret it in as best, as best to our knowledge, the original way it was intended, you know, all of the above. So, yeah. Hey, Welcome. Yes, Miguel. Uh, so the word grace, the word grace is used throughout the Bible. Yes. Would you say that grace is, how would you define grace? Is it, is it a blessing? Is it enlightenment? Is it a gift? Yeah. All of those things? All of those things, yeah. So the word, uh, the word for grace in Greek, I believe, is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. And uh, the best definition I've ever heard of grace is God's activity at work in our lives or God's very life within us. So when we experience grace, it's the activity of God in our life, the actual life and presence of God within us. Um, and so when you see that word great, charis, um, you know, when you um, talk about charisms, that's spelled with charis, charismatic, eucharist has charis right in the middle. Uh, all of that is meant to signify that it is some embodiment of grace, God's activity at work in human beings, in a sacrament, whatever it is. So, yeah.
other questions, thoughts, things that stood out to you? I found it interesting that when he said he came for his people and some of his people didn't accept him. Mm -hmm. I, I would like that. Just um, it, It's kind of like taking out of a lot of lives. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's interesting. Yeah. And this passage really is it's a merging between two stories, you know, two testaments. God revealing himself to his people in the Old Testament and them rejecting him. God revealing himself as the son, Jesus Christ, in the New Testament and people rejecting him. And those two coming together in an understanding of how are these two iterations of God, persons of God, related? And then how then is the Holy Spirit related, which we have in verse 12. But to those who did not accept him, he gave power to become children of God. That word power, dunamis, is always associated with the Holy Spirit. That shows up in Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 8, uh, and other places where it's talking about the power of God that will come upon you when you receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so kind of more inferred Trinitarian language there than it being directly spelled out. But again, the early church is really trying to decipher how do we understand this God who has revealed himself slowly over time in different ages and in different ways. You know, revealed himself as father to a Jewish nation, a chosen people for 2,000 years, and then all of a sudden reveals himself in a new way in Jesus Christ the Son. And it wasn't out of nowhere. There was all these messianic prophecies, obviously, and then even mentions of the, the Holy Spirit. But then in the age of the church, sends the Holy Spirit. And so we have this slow kind of revelation, you know, over time. And the church is trying to understand everything that they've experienced in this new way, this new covenant. So when it says that, um, where is this line? Verse 16, from his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace. That's talking about a New Testament or new covenant activity of God in place of the Old Testament, old covenant activity of God, a new grace in place of an old grace. So they're trying to understand who are we in terms of where we came from? Who is that God? And what is his relationship to God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ? Because it's clear in this that Jesus Christ is God, but is not the same as the God that was the God that revealed himself in the Old Testament. And that's the distinction that's being made. That's why it says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, Meaning it's taking on that same identity as God, but is still distinct and separate. And then in the last line of this, no one has ever seen God, but the only Son, God who is at the Father's side, has revealed him. So we have two people called God, distinct from one another, one who more deeply reveals the other. And it takes 18 verses to get there, and it's still very dense and hard to understand, especially when we don't have the very dense Greek and Hebrew philosophical and uh, ontological understanding that they did at the time. So, yeah. Yes? What's the Greek word for power that you were mentioning? D-U-N-A-M-I-S. It's also where we get the word dynamite, is that, dynamic. Is this, uh, is this Greek word always used in the, in the, in the scriptures like, to, to refer to power, or they use different words for power? Uh, well, different words, because the Old Testament's written in, in Hebrew, New Testament's written in Greek. In the uh, Septuagint, where everything is Greek, then um, you would have that word, but you would also have the word for strength or might. Um, which sometimes can be translated to money. doesn't necessarily mean power. It can mean possessions or things you've been given that you own. So there are other words that you could translate in English to mean power. But all of the times that I'm aware of where the word power is associated with the Holy Spirit um, or with God, versus, as opposed to our own might or our own power or earthly power, when it's uh, associated with God, um, the word power is dunamis, but there is like things like almighty God, El Shaddai, you know, um, those, the, those words are different in Hebrew. What, yeah. is, what is Jesus' current form? I know that he was a beautiful human flesh. He yes. Died and he went to heaven. Yeah. And what would you say is his current form? Is the current form of what he was before he was a man? Yes, so um, this is a great question. Um, this is a super nerdy theological question, and I love it. So, um, so God does not change, right? 
God could not change because then that would mean that God was lacking at one point or became lacking. You know, he does not, he's not, he's unchanging. He's the unmoved mover. He's the one that causes change in things to be. He does not need to change or be anything different than he is. So he's complete and perfect unto himself, has been from the beginning, will always be. So Jesus revealing himself as fully God and fully man, therefore logically then we have to assume always has been fully God and fully man and always will be fully God and fully man. The only difference is, is that at one point in time, he entered into humanity so that he could experience the normal human life of that human nature. But he had to already contain within himself humanity because God created humans. And he created us in his image and likeness, which means that already had to exist as part of him. The human race, human nature already had to exist as part of him. Otherwise, where did we come from? But he manifested in time at a particular point in history as Jesus, fully God and fully divine. And then when he died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he is still fully human and fully divine. Um, but in his glorified form in terms of our perspective. So you could say he's always been the same, but he chose to limit himself. That's what it says in Philippians chapter 2. Like who, um, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but came coming in human likeness and human appearance. So he chose to kind of limit himself, condescend to our reality, our way of being. But in his authentic nature, fully human, fully God, always has been, always will be. Just hard to kind of wrap our head around because we live in time. God lives outside of time. So we think of like, well, before, what was he? And after, what was he? But God always is. He's eternally now. So he can never be different. And he's always the same and as present to now as he was in the beginning, as he is in the end. Hope that made sense. <laughs> A little bit. Other questions, things, other things stand out in this passage? We're in John 1 through, uh, 1 through 18, in case you came in. If more comes up, let me know. There's a couple of other things I want to point out in the short time that we have. And the first of which, where is it? Is how this sets the stage for everything else that happens in John. Okay, in this we have certain themes that arise in the Gospel of John. First of which is this theme of light in verse 4 and 5. This life was the light of the human race, and the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. This shows up all throughout the Gospel of John. In fact, we have one of the famous I am statements of Jesus in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. And when any time Jesus says, I am something, he's invoking the name of God. I am in Greek, ego emi in Hebrew is Yahweh. It's the unspeakable name of God. It was considered blasphemy to say it. So whenever Jesus says, I am something, He's basically saying the forbidden name of God and claiming that he is that person, okay? So anyone who might read the Bible and say, Jesus never says that he's God, if you read it in the original language, it's clear he's saying over and over and over and over again in the Gospel of John, eight times in different statements, some of which are repeated, but eight distinct statements, I am God, okay? I am Yahweh. So he's using that, that particular language, yes? Is it, I would use different language. I would say they, they had such reverence for God's name that they did not say it. Um, I mentioned this before here. I say this at RCIA too. Uh, the idea of names in that culture was when you know someone's name, you're commanding power and authority over them. And so the idea of your name, like for Jewish people, a lot of Jewish people were named um, based on something that happened or that was associated with them. So there wasn't these names that were passed down generation after generation they kind of made up names. So if they, if they uh, suddenly had this miraculous birth and it was in a field, they would name their child Miracle in a Field, and it would just be the Jewish name for that. You know, like that's, that's how names were in Jewish culture. It was like your identity, that was your essence, that's who you were. And if someone knew that name, they could command power over you. So just like I can call across a room and say, hey, Jeff, and Jeff turns around, they would see that as like, wow, I just commanded Jeff's attention. I now have some kind of small sliver of power or authority over him. 
He was subjected to me calling his name. So they gave God different titles. They never wrote the name of God. In fact, very Orthodox Jewish people still don't write the name of God. They write G slash D. Anytime they think the name of God, they bow. In fact, that's also a Catholic tradition. Anytime the name of God is said or Jesus, you bow. Um, or certain, you know, reference titles for God or the Trinity. Um, and um, anytime they, like I said, they pray the name of God, if they think it in their mind, they bow. So you'll often see Orthodox or Hasidic Jews at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, one of the remaining walls of the destroyed temple, and they'll be praying like this. Okay, and that's because they're constantly saying the name of God in their mind, and they have such a reverence for that name that they bow every time they say it. Okay, so it was one, considered a, a deep reverence for God. Two, it was a commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So you shall not invoke the God, the name of God, in any kind of false way. It also has to do with the commandment, you shall not take any uh, false oaths, uh, which is often rendered as you shall not lie. Um, but that also had to do with taking an oath in the name of, a, of, of God or of a God. Um, and so that was something that was forbidden. And it was something that was uh, then laid out in the Torah that was something that was punishable if you were to do that. So in the ancient Jewish culture, once they set up the tabernacle and the temple and they have the priesthood, the only person who can say the name of God is the high priest. And he can only say it once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, around September 21st. Uh, the uh, fall equinox, when he would be able to go into the temple and cleanse the temple, the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, cleanse it with the blood of a sacrificial goat on whom, which um, was, or it was sacrificed for the sins of all the people. And then a second goat, all the sins of the people were placed on that goat as they were announced. And that one was led out into the wilderness, which is where we get the term scapegoat. So all of that came from that one particular feast. So very, very sacred name of God. The Holy of Holies in the temple was considered such a holy and sacred place. If you entered unworthily, you would die. So high priests who would enter, they would go through this big curtain veil, and they would have a rope tied around them, and uh, basically the equivalent of jingle bells attached to them. So if you heard a crash and jingle bells falling, you would pull out the dead body of the unworthy high priest, and you would try again. And so that was how unfathomable the power of the name of God and the presence of God in the temple was. So it was considered so sacred. Now compare that to now, how people blaspheme the name of God, you know, left and right. Even TV, movies, it's just a standard thing. We hear it all the time. I had a, a pastor that I work with. He was a pastor at a local Calvary chapel up in the, mountain where I, uh, in the mountains where I grew up and where I first served in ministry. And anytime someone said, like, oh, my God, or used the name, like, Jesus Christ in a, in a non-religious way, he was like the most chipper guy. Like he was just always in an upbeat mood. He would just be like, Lord's name. And he would just like, just call it out. Just be like, hey, Lord's name. And then we'd just go back to what he was doing. And he had this like great mood about it. And I always admired that about him because he just called it. And it didn't matter if you were like, you knew him or you're mid conversation with him. Like you could have been at the gas station and he would have been filling up at the pump next to you. And you could have been like, oh, on something on your phone. And he probably would have been like, Lord's name. And then got in his car and leave. You know, that was just who he was. And I loved it. I always respected that about him because I just thought it was so, it's so true. You know, we should be having that reverence for God's name. Um, so, yeah, it was considered very, very sacred. So that's a reason why there's so many titles for God. That's a reason why a lot of people in the Bible have multiple names. So their true name could be hidden from others so that that power and authority was commanded over them. That's why in Mark chapter 1 and other places, the demons try and say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They try and claim to know the identity of Jesus. And um, they don't have, they don't command power over him. They're not able to, even though they know his name. And then he knows their name and is able to command them to leave. So it just this kind of shows the, the power of God. Other thoughts about that? So it relates to one other thing. And that is the phrase in verse 14. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In the original Greek, that says that God tabernacled among us. And so the, the, the translation of that is that God pitched his tent among us. And so that's where we get the word tabernacle from, which is the shiny gold box in the chapel that holds the actual presence of Jesus Christ in the consecrated Eucharist, um, that we believe God is present there and dwelling in that place. That is the modern Catholic Christian representation of the Holy of Holies in the temple and the tent of meeting in the desert before that. And so if you remember going back in your Old Testament, 
Once Moses and the Hebrew people come out of slavery in Egypt, they're wandering around in the desert. They make camp at uh, Mount Sinai. Moses goes up, and he enters into the presence of God. It's this huge cloud of thunder, lightning, this powerful presence of God. There's trumpet blasts. It's terrifying. People don't know what to do. And it's called, in Hebrew, Shekinah. It's the glory cloud, the presence of God, his dwelling on earth. Okay? And it was so terrifying. The presence of God was considered so powerful that if you saw God, it was believed that you would die. Okay, and God even says that. He says it even to Moses. This is in Exodus 33, verse 20. But you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. And when uh, Manoah, who is the father of Samson, the prophet, when an angel comes to him and his wife telling them that they're going to have Samson, he says, we certainly will die, for we have seen God. So even if you weren't sure if it was God himself, it was a messenger from God. That was your default thought, like, I'm going to die. No one is worthy to see God. Okay, and if you behold God in all his power and all his glory, you will die. So God appears, usually in the Old Testament, in this big glorious cloud of fire and lightning called a Shekinah in Hebrew, okay? And so when um, they received the law from Moses from Mount Sinai, part of that law, God instructs them to build a dwelling place for him, to dwell with us, okay? And so this is in uh, Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, they are to make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell in their midst. This is what God wanted. Because remember, in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, it says that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He dwelled with them on earth. Heaven and earth, there was this union there. And when sin entered, that was broken. And so what God wants to do, he wants to bring that back. He wants to uh, allow for a bridge to be made again so that he can dwell with us. So the first attempt at that is this tent of meeting in the Old Testament in the desert. Okay, So they build this tent of meeting. And then in Exodus chapter 40... Verse 34, the tent of meeting is finished. It says, thus Moses finished all the work. And then the very next verse, it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled down upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Okay, so this is the image. Okay, when it says God made his dwelling among us, God tabernacled among us, this is the image a Jewish person would have had. The powerful presence of God that brought 10 plagues, led the Hebrew people out of Egypt and guided them for 40 years in the desert, descended upon Mount Sinai and gave the entire Torah, the entire law to the greatest leader, Moses, of, the Jewish, of Jewish history. It was all about the law and the prophets. Moses was the embodiment of both. That is what they thought of. And then eventually when they get into the promised land, they're instructed to build the temple. And when the temple is dedicated, the same thing happens. This is 1 Kings chapter 8 in verse 10. It says, when the priests left the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could no longer minister because of the cloud, since the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Okay, so we have the Garden of Eden. God dwells with us. That's broken because of sin. Then we build the tent of meeting. We escape from slavery in Egypt. God dwells with them. They make it into the promised land. God, they build a temple. God dwells with them. Okay? But then everyone starts turning away. They start turning to paganism. They start turning to idols. They stop worshiping God. They break the laws of the covenant. He sends the prophets to warn them. They don't listen, and they get brought into exile, and the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. In fact, the last person to see it, I think, is the prophet Ezekiel. He sees it leaving the temple to go be with them in exile, but then it never returns back. And he has a vision of what it will be like one day when it does, but it's gone. And that's in about the, the 6th century before Christ. So for 600 years leading up to Jesus, no theophany, no Shekinah glory cloud, no presence of God dwelling in the temple, and the Ark of the Covenant that dwelled there is lost. Jeremiah seals it up in a cave, the prophet Jeremiah. So they have literally no connection to God anymore, except going through this sacrificial system that he's given them to hope that they can appease God, to hope that they are making restitution for their sins. But he is no longer has this powerful presence. Like you could see the presence of God traveling with them. You could see, if you saw the tent of meeting from miles away in the desert, you could see this heavenly cloud hovering above it. And when the heavenly cloud moved, they packed up the tent and they traveled. That was how they wandered through the desert for 40 years. And that existed above the temple the entire time it was built in that first temple era until it was destroyed by, by Babylon. So this is the power 
that this invokes. And then it says in this passage, John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That now that powerful presence of God that you knew in the Old Testament that saved you, that you saw as your victory, as God choosing you, as God present among his people, as it was in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, the way things should be, now that is back in the person of Jesus Christ. That is why this passage is so profoundly important. That's why this used to be recited at the end of every Latin Mass. Because people wanted to be reminded that now that they've received the Eucharist, guess what? God is making his dwelling in you. You are now a living tabernacle. That's what the church teaches. When you receive the Eucharist, that's the real body, blood, soul, and divinity, the presence of Jesus Christ. Just as real as he was when he walked this earth 2,000 years ago, that real presence of Jesus Christ is within you, and you are a living tabernacle. You are a glorious tent of meeting to bear witness to people from all around that the presence of God is powerfully there in you and in the church. That's the power of this passage and what Jesus does, what he begins to do. That's why it says he gives grace upon grace. He replaces all that old covenant with something new. And that new covenant is something we can participate in, that we can be part of. And so when we prepare to hear this Christmas day, and we really think about everything that the incarnation means, that Jesus became man, it wasn't just a special thing that happened 2,000 years ago so that we can know God a little bit better. It was so God could initiate a way so that we can be brought back into relationship with him. And it's no longer in a structure that has this separation between us and the priests and the sacrifices. It no longer has this veil and no longer has all this formality that only you can go in once a year, that no one even can say the name. No, we know the name of God. We can utter it as often as we wish in prayer. And that presence of God can be real within us every single day if we so choose. And that power can change the world in us and through us. And that is a huge gift that we take for granted so many times when we go to Mass, when we receive the Eucharist half-heartedly or in ignorance, just not realizing the power and the gravity of what's happening. So when you hear this passage proclaimed, when you reflect on it this week, you think about the glory of what Christmas means, that is the gift. That is the power of what is happening every time we are at Mass, every time we receive the Eucharist. God is here in us. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this word, the gift of this Advent season, and all the ways you intend to bless us and be born anew in our life in this coming Christmas season. And we pray, Lord, that we would just be open and that we would no longer be ignorant of the ways that you are present powerfully in our lives, in the Eucharist, in the Mass, here in this church, in the presence of the community, and within each one of us when we receive you. And so we pray, God, that we would be more attuned to that knowledge, more aware of your powerful presence in us and those around us, and the responsibility we then have to go be walking temples and tabernacles out in the world to inspire others to know your powerful presence, to know the love that you have for them, to know the intimacy you invite them into, and that you have died to save them from sin, which is the only obstacle preventing them from having all of this for themselves. So we pray, God, that we would know that and live in that truth, and that we would tell as many people as possible so that they can know it and live in it too. Bless us in the ways we most need it in the coming week. And until we gather again in two weeks, um, bless us with an anointed Christmas season in our families and help us to take the opportunity to let them know, everyone we see, that they are loved by us and especially by you. And pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.